I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, trade guys. guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we're joined by Kier Lamont, a data privacy expert, to discuss a huge court decision out of Europe that threatens to upend data flows between the United States and the EU. We'll break down what the decision means for businesses and consumers, how policymakers are likely to respond, and what it all means for the future of the internet. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Getting serious, Trade Guys. Today, we have Kier Lamont, a very special guest. He's the policy counsel at the Computer and Communications Industry Association, where he focuses on issues related to privacy, security, and emerging technology. Um, Kier, thank you so much for joining us here today. We got a lot of really cool and wonky things to talk to you about. The Trade Guys over here, uh, who are, of course, virtual in their homes in Bethesda. I'm in my home in Bethesda, you know. They're chomping at the bit to ask you some very wonky questions. So I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Have at it, my friend. Well, uh, Kier, thank you for, for joining us, and we're, we're delighted to have you on the program. And your presence couldn't be more timely, uh, because what we'd actually like to start with is a decision that, that was handed down uh, this week from the European Court of Justice regarding uh, digital privacy and and whether and really finding that the U.S. platform for this is no longer acceptable uh, the European uh, system. So, if you could help our, our uh, introduce yourself, if you would please, and help our listeners understand what's going on, we'll take the conversation from there. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Kier Lamont. I'm a policy counsel at the Computer and Communications Industry Association, uh, focusing on issues of uh, data privacy and security. Uh, CCIA members include leading companies in the high-tech uh, products and services sector, including businesses that are participants in the uh, transatlantic economy and are looking very closely at what the Court of Justice of the European Union held in Schrems last week. So at a very high level, this case essentially involved the circumstances under which a company can move personal data outside of the European Union and into a different jurisdiction. Uh, under European law, people's rights to personal privacy travel with their data. Uh, what that means is if a company wants to move personal information outside of Europe and into another jurisdiction, there must be essentially equivalent privacy protections for that data. The EU has determined that only a handful of countries uh, apply these uh, adequate, essentially equivalent privacy protections upfront in their law, and the United States is not one of these nations. So, in response and uh, recognizing uh, the importance and economic value of uh, international data flows, uh, European lawmakers have established various tools that allow organizations to move data outside of Europe while continuing to provide those necessary privacy protections. In last Thursday's case, uh, the court looked at two of the most popular tools that companies can use to transfer data. 
one, the EU-US Privacy Shield Framework, and two, Standard Contractual Clauses, or SCC. It was a long ruling, but in short, the court ruled that the Privacy Shield Framework is no longer a valid tool for moving European citizens' data outside of the EU. The court also looked at SCCs and determined that these model clauses remain valid. However, it's subject to uh, certain caveats that businesses will be looking at very closely. So if I get this right, the Privacy Shield was a government-to-government -government agreement between the United States and the European Union, which, which was valid if you followed the rules, and it is no longer. But uh, the, so the, and the backup is basically a, a private sector approach, which is basically contracting. And those contracts are, were not declared invalid, but they, they, could, they are subject to review by the underlying authorities. Is that the way to think about this? Absolutely. Uh, the Privacy Shield framework uh, dates back to 2016, and organizations could self-certify to that framework that they meet uh, certain uh, privacy protective requirements. Oversight and review of this framework was carried out by both the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce as well as the Federal Trade Commission, and about 5,300 companies uh, were participants in this framework. On standard contractual clauses, the court said that although these remain valid at a high level, it's up to companies themselves on a case-by-case -case basis to ensure that the standard contractual clauses meet the requirements of the court standards for transferring data to foreign jurisdictions, uh, depending on that foreign jurisdiction. And in some certain circumstances, uh, something called additional safeguards may be required to ensure that uh, those privacy protections uh, remain in place. So companies will be looking very closely at their own standard contractual clauses and attempting to determine whether or not additional safeguards may be required. Well, how does, how does, that, uh, how does that get adjudicated? I mean, supposing a company signs a standard contract and says, we've taken all the necessary steps, what happens then? It's on, is the burden on somebody else to disagree with that? And if they do, where do they go? Yeah, that's a really great question. And this is kind of an interesting role for companies to take. The court essentially said that the on a first order level, it's up to companies themselves to review their standard contractual clauses and review the laws of the uh, jurisdiction to which data will be transferred to determine if those jurisdictions meet the requirements of the court in terms of privacy uh, protections and national security safeguards. And so that's an unusual role for companies to take. So companies will be looking to the commission for further guidance on how to make those first order determinations. And then you have companies making those kind of first level decisions. And then there are about 27 uh, European uh, data protection authorities who will also be looking at standard contractual clauses and uh, determining and offering guidance, hopefully, whether or not they can continue to be used and under what circumstances and to what jurisdictions they remain valid. How particularized are these, these contracts? I mean, if I'm, if I'm a bank, uh, for example, and I want to transfer data from Ireland to the U.S., do I have to have a separate contract for every depositor, every piece um, of data? This is fundamentally contracts that go into uh, relationships from, uh, from business to businesses or within a business itself as data is being transferred uh, overseas uh, within that organization. So it's on a more of a business to business level than for an individual. 
although so it would cover control. all data, all data that I wanted to transfer would be covered by a single contract. Uh, Yes, all, all personal data that is being uh, transferred pursuant to these contracts. And the European Union has taken uh, a fairly expansive view on what personal data uh, entails. A lot, there's a lot of routine business done by, by multinational companies that requires this data to be transferred. So you, do, you have, a, you have a, a senior manager in Europe that you want to run your U.S. operation. His personnel file or her personnel file gets transferred at some point. That's personally recognizable data. Same with, uh, with product research uh, and, and claims for product benefits that, that need uh, some research behind them. That research is often done at an individual consumer level. And while the, while the individuals aren't identifiable, it is sort of European data being transferred to the United States. So it does happen a lot on a routine basis. But if, if, I, if I understand the decision right, it wasn't that companies did anything wrong. I mean, the privacy shield was rejected not because of company conduct, but because of the, sort of the overall surveillance uh, state as it's practiced in the United States and the European objections to that. Did I miss something? No, uh, that is correct. In looking at Privacy Shield, the court uh, primarily reviewed uh, certain U.S. Uh, national security laws and determined that uh, as applied to European data through the Privacy Shield, these laws lacked uh, proportionality under the European Charter of Human Rights and also lacked uh, sufficient independent redress for European citizens who felt that their privacy rights had been violated. So it was on those two bases that the court struck down the validity of the Privacy Shield framework. I'm still trying to figure out how this is going to play out in practice. So I'm a company and I self-certify. I decide that everything's being done in accordance with the contract. I guess I just sort of say, you know, that I think my government is also acting consistent, which may or may not be true. But that, as a company, if I'm the first order of, of uh, line of defense here, I decide that. So who gets to complain? Anybody? Does it have to be somebody whose data is at risk? Can it be the commission? Who starts the, the adjudicatory ball rolling here? Uh, so it can involve uh, uh, citizens whose personal data may be being transferred overseas, can raise a complaint, and then the independent Europe, European uh, data protection authorities also have in their purview the ability to uh, launch investigations and take enforcement actions uh, on their own volition. Kier, l- let me ask you this. For businesses, how important is the seamless free flow of user data across the Atlantic Ocean? So the unencumbered free flow of data across both the Atlantic Ocean and globally is incredibly important to our modern digital economy. Uh, the internet is inherently global and companies uh, use data flows to help process information in uh, various jurisdictions, to use data servers in various countries, as, as well as contract with uh, service providers across the globe who help them uh, take advantage of economies of scale and to compete globally. We've uh, discussed some of the specific uses that uh, data flows help play. Some of that is uh, to routine business data practices like managing HR and payroll information, as well as uh, responding to customer service requests. But these types of data flows are also extremely important to actually providing digital services themselves, 
uh, whether they be uh, cloud service, cloud supported uh, platforms, uh, websites, uh, mobile applications, etc. So if companies uh, don't have uh, reliability and consistent expectations that they are allowed to move and transfer data in this manner without running afoul of the law, we're really looking at potential disruptions to some of the, the basic digital services that we all use uh, and enjoy, as well as if there aren't uh, kind of consistent uh, mechanisms and tools to be able to do this, uh, some of the smaller companies may be forced to, uh, to exit markets going forwards. So why why isn't just key storing your data in Europe an adequate answer for American companies? You know, some of the bigger companies are potentially going to be looking at that as an option. It's clearly going to take a long time to kind of build uh, data centers entirely within Europe and create that kind of uh, restructuring. If a company decided to try to sidestep uh, transatlantic data flows in that regard, that's clearly not going to be a possibility for many smaller and medium-sized businesses. And that's really not how, how the internet works. It's not uh, good for modern security practices if you have to lock down all your data in one specific uh, area and can't uh, make use of modern cloud-supported tools and uh, security practices. No, it's, I, I wasn't suggesting it was a good idea. It's a terrible idea. Uh, and in, in fact, the U.S. has been, this is, actually, this is a trade policy question. The U.S. has been building into its trade agreements, USMCA being a good example, U.S.-Japan being another example, uh, prohibitions on data, lo- mandatory data localization, uh, and th- steps to try to t- ensure the free flow of data. We don't have such an agreement with Europe. Would this be an issue? Does GDPR, as interpreted by the court, fly in the face of U- other U.S. trade agreements, do you think? Uh, well, we certainly hope not. And uh, kind of the good news here is certainly that uh, both uh, American lawmakers and European lawmakers and politicians uh, in response to this ruling have reiterated their commitment uh, to the unencumbered flow of data and are, are willing to return to the negotiating table to make sure that uh, appropriate and adequate data transfer mechanisms remain available to businesses so that these transatlantic data flows, the lifeblood of a trillion dollar economic partnership uh, can remain in place. All right. So this is the kind of thing that's happening, you know, above most of our heads. But what are the implications for the average American and the average EU citizen? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. And, you know, as we kind of recover from the ongoing public health crisis, as companies start uh, opening back up, uh, economies start opening back up, the last thing that consumers need is to be faced with a new kind of uh, transatlantic data lockdown that could potentially disrupt consumer services and undermine the economic recovery. Now, the extent to which uh, potential economic disruption could be at play here is very much going to depend on lawmakers and regulators on both sides of the Atlantic and the steps that we take in these uh, coming months to ensure that companies that relied on the privacy shield uh, can transition to new and different legal mechanisms to be able to transfer their information across borders, as well as uh, continued availability and validity of other 
uh, data transfer mechanisms. You know, it always seems to me that there's a culture clash <clears throat> when it comes to negotiating these things between the United States and Europe. And I just look at it as to who, who makes the decisions. In Europe, it's uh, I think it's the directorate, uh, the justice directorate. So the people who are concerned about justice and human rights and uh, underlying citizens' rights. Whereas in the United States, we assign it to the Commerce Department because we see it kind of as a commercial mechanism. And that always feels like a, an opportunity to talk past each other. Am I missing something here? What, what, what's your prognosis for for a for another deal for something that because obviously there was a, some deal that led to the privacy shield that is in now inadequate. Yeah, let me let, let me build on that before you respond, if I may, because I was going to get into it the same way. It seems to me the the inference in the court's decision is that U.S. surveillance practices are unacceptable, and of course right. that means suggests that from the court's point of view, uh, the simple answer here is the U.S. could change its surveillance practices. That's probably unlikely, uh, certainly in this administration, but probably in the next one. The United States would probably say the reverse, which is if Europe would change its privacy rules, this problem would go away. Uh, that strikes me as equally unlikely for the reasons that Scott said. You've got different people in charge. So comment on both of those things, if you can. Uh, sure. So uh, I wish I had a crystal ball that I could uh, steer into here to tell you how this is going to be resolved. I don't. And at this point, kind of all I can say is that uh, policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic are definitely reviewing uh, this decision very closely, uh, digesting it. It's uh, fairly long and uh, trying to figure out uh, what guidance it provides uh, to what would uh, amount to a sustainable framework uh, going forward. Uh, on uh, national security and surveillance, uh, I can definitely imagine that those uh, policies in the United States are going to be looked at, uh, as would be uh, certain other uh, potential adjustments that could be made to help uh, try to renegotiate a new framework here. Uh, certain commenters have discussed uh, establishing a baseline federal privacy framework for the protection of data, which may help in securing another form of inadequacy decision going forward. Uh, other people have uh, suggested more nuanced kind of uh, wonky ways to try to respond to some of the concerns uh, raised by the uh, Court of Justice, such as taking the ombudsperson, which was uh, created at the start of the Privacy Shield framework and provides a measure of oversight in regards to uh, surveillance authorities with respect to non-US persons data and trying to augment the independence and authority of that ombudsperson. There are other potential controls, uh, both technical and procedural, that are also likely to be looked at. So I would say there are definite levers that can be pulled here and uh, things that can be worked with as uh, policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic uh, come together here and discuss uh, next steps in uh, attempting to create a new framework going forward. Do you guys have a preferred option? So there are definitely uh, steps that we would like to see taken to uh, ensure that uh, companies and businesses can continue to uh, transfer data globally. Um, uh, definitely a new privacy shield, a new kind of safe harbor type framework that allows uh, organizations to self-certify uh, that they meet uh, various privacy protections uh, would be ideal. There's also a necessity to ensure the validity of standard contractual clauses and to make sure that they can be used to protect data and transfer data uh, throughout the globe. And kind of additional guidance from the uh, European Data Protection Board would be helpful for giving 
company's certainty that they can continue to use these model clauses, as well as uh, describe to companies what additional safeguards may be and uh, when additional safeguards may need to be applied. And there's been some discussion on what exactly those uh, additional safeguards uh, may be. The court was uh, silent as to what these additional safeguards are. And there's been discussion of uh, technical protections uh, for data, such as encryption or tokenization of personal information, as well as reviews of the specific uh, data at issue, the data that will be subject to transfer, and reviewing whether or not it may be subject to uh, future law enforcement data access requests. Here, does the EU risk elevating privacy at the expense of its ability to engage in the global digital economy? And in your view, what is the right balance of privacy and access to data? So I think that's a, uh, that's a really great question, and that's a key question. And certainly European policymakers, European consumers, European businesses do not want to see themselves uh, cut off from the global internet or uh, transatlantic data flows. On the issue of uh, privacy kind of versus data access, privacy is an important value, but it's one that uh, can differ and vary across different countries and across different cultures even. And as an example, for the European Union, the issues we're talking about here aren't actually consumer privacy rights or privacy issues. It's a data protection framework. So privacy is an extremely important value, but it is one that can and often does intersect with other important values like the right to free speech, the right to security. And it can sometimes intersect with these values in conflicting ways. And so approaching any issue where privacy rights are involved, a balanced approach uh, rather than a fundamentalist approach, I think is required. Now, for the European Union specifically, obviously, data protection, privacy is an extremely important right, and businesses are committed to continuing to respect European law and finding ways to continue to transfer data uh, in doing so. I worry that within Europe, there's this kind of essential equivalency test that is applied to transatlantic data flows that is used to ensure that the recipient jurisdiction applies an equivalent or equal level of protection to that data. And I worry that this essential equivalency test, uh, as it's being used, is uh, currently uh, looking too much at kind of comparing foreign jurisdictions' privacy protections to the kind of formalistic frameworks for protecting privacy that exist in the European Union. Uh, in the European Union, and not looking at the higher level principles uh, behind those privacy protections, which can be achieved in different jurisdictions and different systems in a variety of ways. So going forward, I would hope that uh, more attention is paid to achieving the ends of privacy protection rather than the individual means for doing so. Guys, jump in here. It's a very, you know, it's a very European approach. It's the top-down uh, sort of uh, you know classic Euro- European approach to things uh, in terms of of trying to trying to make make a regulation top down. Our system, of course, is judge made law, bottom up, uh, common law. But more importantly, our surveillance networks are built on the fact that foreigners do not have Fourth Amendment rights uh, in the United States. The, the way citizens do, and so uh, the the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Act covers when there is a foreign party, and it would affect all Europeans, uh, but not Americans. So there, there's 
there's both different legal systems, but but different priorities in uh, in sort of and, and the importance of really really since uh, since its authorization of uh, foreign surveillance, uh, whether it's counterterrorism or whatever the uh, the approach would be. I mean, Congress just recently renewed the FISA, and I don't see any of that changing anytime in the future. The the that policy. You know, if you think about that difference, as Scott described, and then the factor in China, uh, are we leading, are we heading toward the disappearance of a global internet and a fragmented structure in which you have at least three large blocks, each running things their own way and in ways that are incompatible with each other? That can't possibly be a good thing, but are, is that the direction we're going? Um, that would uh, definitely be a concern. And you uh, mentioned uh, data localization laws, which we've seen uh, proposals for in uh, various uh, countries over, over the past several years. So these are definitely heightened kind of issues uh, that are uh, continuing to emerge and uh, threaten uh, the modern internet and the modern global economy. With respect to this specific case, the Privacy Shield framework that was uh, struck down only related to data that uh, was being transferred from the European Union to the United States. However, these additional caveats and review for standard contractual clauses uh, that we discussed, uh, these clauses are used globally to send uh, information all over the world, including other jurisdictions that have not yet been or have not been reviewed by the Court of Justice of the European Union. So there are going to be questions for companies going forward, how they can continue to use uh, these uh, model clauses and to participate in the uh, in the transatlantic, uh, both the transatlantic economy for sending data to the United States, as well as kind of all over the globe to countries that have very different approaches to national security and surveillance policy. Well, guys, this has been an amazing discussion. Kier, thank you for your insights. We appreciate it. And we'd love to have you back as these uh, policy discussions continue and, and uh, we'll be thinking about it and looking at it as it comes forward. So thank you very it's much. It's a mess right now, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. I was yeah. going I'm I'm depressed. <laughs> I know. And I, like what are we going to do here? You've enlightened us, Kuro. You haven't made me feel any better. Uh, this is going to get worse before it gets better, I think. So we definitely want to have you back and as this, as this evolves and we can uh comment on on which way it's going. Well, thank you for having me and uh thank you for a great discussion and we'll uh definitely be following the uh continued negotiations between lawmakers going forward as we try to ensure the vitality of these necessary uh data flow tools. Well, thanks. We'll we'll look forward to the update. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.